for me to be able to see some faces in a congregation, which I haven't had uh, for quite a few months. So if I start staring off, it's probably because I'm looking at the camera and forgetting that everybody's here. So I apologize for that in advance. And, uh, but it is a real uh, blessing, isn't it, to be able uh, to be together uh, as the people of God. And it's a great joy uh, to see you all here tonight. Well, we're going to begin uh, with uh, a call to worship from 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, but we're going to stand and say these words together. 
uh, uh, words of praise to our God because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So let's stand together and read uh, these words from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Well, please remain standing as we open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we, uh, with Peter, want to say today, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for your great mercy in giving us new birth, and we thank you for the living hope that we have been born into. We praise you that this hope is certain because Christ has risen from the dead. Grant us today fresh assurance in your resurrection that would give us fresh impetus to love and serve you with all of our hearts, soul, mind, and strength. Please forgive us, Lord, for the times we have not loved you and served you as we ought, when we have forgotten who you are and what you have done for us, when we have failed you. We confess our sins and we ask for forgiveness based on that finished work of Jesus for us. And it is in his name that we pray these things. Amen. Please take your seats.
Shall we pray together? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks tonight that we have the freedom to meet here, to meet with one another for worship. We praise you for this, Lord, but more importantly, we praise you that we can meet with you. We sang this morning, Lord, Lo, Jesus meets us, risen from the tomb. Lovingly he greets us, scatters fear and gloom. And we thank you, Lord, that for all who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is true, that we no longer have to fear judgment, death and condemnation from you, because you have paid for our sins, you've taken our death, and you now lovingly call us your brothers and sisters, and you long to meet us, and we long to meet you, Lord Jesus. And for all of this, we worship you tonight. We thank you that we can be together, but we thank you that we can be together in your presence. And Father, as we meet here, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world, that Lord, that they may know your joy today. Father, so many do not have the privilege that we have to gather together in freedom. Some, Lord, are in places of persecution. Some, Lord, are in prison isolated in solitary confinement. Lord Jesus, we ask you to meet these and to bless them today, regardless of their circumstances. May all your children throughout the world, Lord, know that they are truly free because the Son has set them free. We do praise you, Lord, that we are in a worldwide community of forgiven sinners. And we thank you and we bless you for all that this day means to us, the significance of it, Lord. Lord, uh, it is just such a mighty thing and a glorious thing to be able to worship the risen Christ, and we praise you. Father, we want to pray, as we pray throughout the world, we also want to pray for our own church members who have not been able to be here today personally due to illness or due to shielding. Please meet these, we pray, and grant to them your joy. We pray for Carol and for John tonight and ask you to be near to them and to bless them, Lord. We pray for Jenny. We pray for Pat Salt. We pray for dear Norman and Doreen, who cannot meet with us so often now. We do pray for our dear brothers and sisters uh, who are in homes, Lord, for uh, the two Leses, Les Hubble and Les Ratherham, Lord, be near to them, we do ask and pray. Pray for Peggy and Dot and Olive. We pray for Elizabeth Brooke and Sylvia Cross. For all of these and so many others, Lord, we just bring them to you this evening and ask you to bless them, to meet with them, to, Lord, lift their hearts to you and grant them your joy, the joy of this Easter day, we pray. We pray for our dear sister Elsie Boynton, as Elsie uh, is even as we meet tonight, travelling to the QE hospital for her stay there and operation on Tuesday. Pray that you will be with Elsie and Alan, Lord, and bless them and be with them. Now, our Father, we pray that as we meet here tonight, uh, either here or listening at home, we ask that as your word is open to us, you will speak to us again. You will meet with us again in your truth and bless our hearts and teach us and challenge us. 
We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our Bible reading this evening is going to be from a part of Matthew's Gospel in his account of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you would turn to Matthew chapter 28, and we're going to read verses 1 through 10. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, he has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There you will see me.
Wonderful words, aren't they? Wonderful words. So, we're going to turn now to Matthew's Gospel and uh, chapter 26. And this evening we're going to be just in verses 31 uh, down to verse 35 of Matthew 26. So, just where we are in this Gospel, the Passover meal has uh, finished. And there are 11 of the 12 disciples left. Judas has gone off to lead Jesus' enemies to him. And Jesus and his disciples uh, go to the Mount of Olives, where the Garden of Gethsemane is located. And that was a favorite place for Jesus to pray. Uh, Commonly enough, uh, known for Judas to know where Jesus would be found when the soldiers would come. So the account we're going to read is either on the way to Gethsemane or just by there, and it's where we see the beginning of the preparation for the trial of Jesus and his disciples. So I'm going to read verses 31 to 35. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Then Jesus told them, this very night you will all Fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, 
I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. This is God's word. Well, many years ago, uh, our family uh, used to go on a camping trip every year to Cornwall, uh, where we would camp in a, a big field of a church uh, with lots of other Christians from all over the UK. And every single year at this camp, uh, there would always be a football tournament. Now, some people would bring a team with them, but I was always among the stragglers who would make up a random team uh, during this tournament. And one year, uh, I was on a team with two girls and a dad who was not a young man. We didn't look all that great. Now, some of you know how good my football skills are, <laughs> or not very good. But we ended up winning the tournament because the teams that we played against would always underestimate our abilities because we had these two girls in the team. Now, even though I'm not very good, I can look the part because I had the, the football kit and the boots and everything, but the other team looked at the girls and they thought this is going to be a walkover. And at first, the other teams would gently mock and patronize them. Then they would be scared to tackle them because they were girls. And then they would realize, well, we've got to try and tackle them. And then they realized they couldn't because they couldn't get anywhere near these girls. They were by far and away the best players on that whole campsite. And other teams were completely overconfident in their own abilities, thinking we'd be a walk in the park. And then when they faced us, or rather faced those two girls, they fell flat on their faces. And we see that often in sports, don't we, where teams are overconfident in their abilities to win, and then they end up being really embarrassed. And what we see tonight in this passage in Matthew's Gospel is how we can do that, not just when facing teams in sports, but when we face trials and temptations in life. We can look at them ahead of time and think, we are going to be able to overcome this, no problem at all. We are overconfident, and then we end up falling flat on our faces. And the trial that is coming for the disciples is that of the arrest and trial and death of Jesus Christ. Now we're slowing down in Matthew's gospel here to the last hours before Jesus dies on the cross to fulfill what Matthew has told us he came to do, to save his people from their sins. And in verses 1 to 16 of this chapter, we saw the imminence of Jesus' death, that it's coming soon, a couple of days away. And then last week, in verses 17 to 30, we saw the reason for Jesus' death at the Last Supper. The reason being to pour out his blood for the forgiveness of sins. 
And in saving us from our sins, Jesus will undergo the greatest suffering that any human being has ever undergone in history. Now, people may well have undergone more physical pain than Jesus will undergo at the cross, but no one has suffered to the extent that Jesus will suffer as he pays the penalty for our sins. And we'll see more of that next week when we come to see him in the Garden of Gethsemane. But whilst not to the extent of Jesus, the disciples also will face their greatest trial. Both Jesus and the disciples are warned that this trial is coming. And what we see here this week with the disciples and next week with the disciples and Jesus is how they prepare for this trial which is coming. And we see how their preparations differ very much. There's a clear contrast that Matthew draws out between the preparation of Jesus and the preparation of the disciples for us to see and learn from. And just like at the football tournament at my camp, the disciples think that this is going to be a walk in the park. So this week we're going to focus on verses 31 to 35, really on the disciples' initial reaction. And then next week we'll see how Jesus prepares in the Garden of Gethsemane. So this week we see overconfidence. And as we walk through verses 31 to 56, we're going to see a number of steps in preparation for this trial. So we're going to see three steps this week, and then more next. And the first step is that we see the suffering is overhead. That's verse 31. The suffering is overhead. Now at the Last Supper, Jesus had said that one of the twelve would betray him. But now he says, if you notice there in verse 31, that all of the rest would fall away. Now, Jesus doesn't have much confidence in his disciples, does he? That should actually encourage us that Jesus does not choose superheroes to be his followers, but he does choose failures. At least I'm encouraged by that. But to fall away means to stumble. It's not a complete rejection but it is a failure of discipleship. It means that they won't cease to be his disciples, but they will sin and fail him. This is not like Judas. And we'll see that there's a difference between the two, the difference being in how they behave after their respective failures, or how they repent, or in the case of Judas, do not repent. And notice there in verse 31 that Jesus says the falling away is on account of me. Jesus is saying that because of me, you will fall away. So they're going to face a test of courage, an opportunity to stand for Jesus, and Jesus says they are going to desert him. And it's certain because Jesus says that it's written in the Old Testament. He quotes here in verse 31 from the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 7 is where Jesus uh, speaks from here. And in the book of Zechariah, the people there are looking forward to the Messiah coming. And the Messiah is described in Zechariah as a shepherd. 
That's in Zechariah chapter 11. And interestingly, in Zechariah 11, this Messiah shepherd is rejected by the people. And they pay him off to go away. And it's interesting because look at what the payment was in Zechariah 11 verse 12. I told them, this is uh, um, the shepherd, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And then in verse 13 of that chapter, the Lord sarcastically describes this amount as the handsome price at which they valued me. And so we see the rejection there of their shepherd king for 30 pieces of silver, which is what happened, isn't it, with Judas? But that was Judas. What about these 11 disciples? Well, Zechariah says that this shepherd king, who Zechariah describes as one who is close to God, will be struck and then the sheep will scatter. That's where Matthew is quoting from. But notice how it is God who strikes the shepherd. Matthew points out, I will strike the shepherd. It's part of the plan of God. Yet again, as we've been seeing in Matthew 26, the death of Jesus is part of the divine plan to save people from sin. And by striking the shepherd, this is the shepherd who will lay down his life for the sheep. But we also see here, and this is the focus that Jesus gives us, the responsibility of failure upon those disciples. They will scatter. This is another description of falling away. It is written in the scriptures, this is going to happen. The suffering is overhead. And so the disciples are warned about this. And in fact, we see in verse 31, it's not very far overhead, is it? Because Jesus says it's going to happen this very night. So their great trial is upon them. Now we're not usually given warning about the exact time that trials will come into our lives, are we? Often they happen very suddenly. But we are told that if we are going to be followers of Jesus we will face suffering because we are following Jesus. Now, we can apply suffering being overhead to any trials. Of course, that is true. But here, Jesus specifically says that the trial is on account of me. And Jesus says this kind of thing quite often. So, for example, in in Matthew 16 and verse 24, Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his... His cross, not, not, the, not his couch, not his bed, his cross, the, thing, the, the, the implement of suffering, and follow me. So if you live for Jesus, there is suffering overhead because you follow Jesus. Now this can come in various forms in our lives, can't it? Alan uh, was praying for Christians in many parts of the world where that means they will literally be killed for following Jesus. For many of us, it may mean we are laughed at or looked down upon. There are trials of our faith. We have doubts and the like, don't we? In your workplace, you may have to stand for Jesus against your employer 
that might be overhead for you. I would also um, mention something else that we've been praying about in recent days. We've been praying at our prayer meeting about the, the law regarding conversion therapy, haven't we? Now, of course, we are against and appalled by barbaric practices like electroshock therapy and coercive rape and the like, things which are against the law um, already. But it may become illegal for us to teach in church or to even teach our children in our homes that God's design for sex is for one man and one woman in marriage for life. There may come a time overhead in the not distant future where it could be illegal to teach that. We could be prosecuted. That's an example of suffering on account of Jesus. In fact, if there's no suffering at all in our Christian lives, you have to wonder whether you are actually following him at all. And even in what we could call normal sufferings, sufferings that everybody goes through in the world, not specifically on account of Christ, God brings those things into our lives that we would be more like Jesus Christ. And he uses those things for his glory, doesn't he? And so Jesus warns his disciples, and we should take the warning too, as his disciples today, that suffering is overhead. Now there are some of you uh, listening today where the day of trial is not overhead, but is already here. Well, here is a truth that can help you this day, in the day of trial. Because although the suffering is overhead and the shepherd will be struck, we also see that the shepherd will overcome. Notice there in verse 32, Jesus uh, already in the gospel has predicted his death explicitly four times, and this verse is the fourth time he explicitly predicts his resurrection from the dead. In verse 32, notice Jesus tells them the end of the story. He will rise and go ahead of them. And we read that in our Bible reading at the end of Matthew's gospel. In Matthew 28, Jesus goes ahead of them into Galilee. That means they will join him again, he says. Now in the prophecy in Zechariah about the shepherd being struck and the sheep scattering, Zechariah goes on to say how a third or some of the people scattered will come back and be the people of God. And we see that being fulfilled here. Jesus will be struck, the disciples will scatter, but they will come back again and they will be the founders of the church of Jesus Christ, the new people of God. Notice again how Jesus is in complete control of the events leading up to his death. He knows what's happening. He's in control, but he knows the end. And as we go through the day of trial, we need to know that the shepherd, Jesus Christ, has overcome the greatest trial of all. He has paid for our sins and he has risen from the dead. And his resurrection means that the sacrifice for sin has been accepted. And the New Testament tells us, like we were looking at this morning in 1 Corinthians and elsewhere, 
that the resurrection of Jesus ensures our resurrection to eternal life and for all of those who put their trust in Christ. There will be days of trial. Suffering will be overhead. But all of the time, God is in control and God is overcoming. And at this point in history, where the disciples are, Jesus went ahead of them into Galilee. But he has gone ahead of us into heaven. And we will meet him there. That day is coming. And we know it's coming because he has risen from the dead. And as we go through the Gospels, there is the distinct impression, isn't there, that that until the resurrection happened, the disciples completely missed it or didn't understand it whenever Jesus spoke of it. Almost every time Jesus predicts his death and his resurrection, the disciples focus on the death and react against it and completely overlook the fact that he says, I'm going to rise. So, for example, uh, in in Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21, Jesus uh, talks about his death and resurrection, and Peter says, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Then the next chapter, chapter 17, verses 22 and 23, Jesus spoke of his death and resurrection, and we read, The disciples are filled with grief. They miss it again and again and again. But isn't it true that when we are in a day of trial, we rail against the trial, are consumed with grief, which isn't necessarily a bad thing on its own. We shouldn't just, we are filled with grief because there is an appropriate time for grief. But how often do we forget that the shepherd has overcome? It's the thing that we, 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 we put out of our minds, don't we? Just like the disciples did when they were with Jesus. So let me speak to those who among us are suffering through trials. Do not lose sight of the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Don't lose sight of it. Don't put it out of your mind. Christ has risen. And remember that not just on Easter Sunday, but every single day of our lives, we need to remember Jesus is risen from the dead. And there is a day coming when we will join him and we will be with him forever and ever. The shepherd has overcome. Well, now we come to the reaction of the disciples. They know, or rather they've been told, the suffering is overhead. I'm not sure we can say they really know it. The shepherd will overcome, they've been told that. But the way that they prepare for their coming trial doesn't look good. Because thirdly, we see that the servants are overconfident. Now Peter, who is often a mouthpiece for the disciples, speaks for himself in verse 33. He says, even if all the others fall away, I never will. Notice how confident Peter is here. He is emphatic. Never. He feels a cut above even the other disciples. Well, the the others might fall away. These other ten, I don't know where Judas is, but but me? Never. I would just pause here, by the way, to, to mention how dangerous it is, but how common it is 
to think ourselves a cut above the average Christian. Especially when we see someone else fall, we can easily say, that would never happen to me. Be wary of that. Be wary of thinking that you are a cut above the average Christian, or any Christian. But Jesus corrects Peter in verse 34. Notice that. He says, Peter will betray Jesus three times before the night is out. Notice the repetition. This very night. Just like he said in verse 31. Peter is confident, but Jesus says that Peter's resolve, just like the other disciples, won't even last this very night. And Peter, being the one who speaks most emphatically about his loyalty to our Lord Jesus, ends up being the one who fails him most spectacularly out of the 11 that remain. Look again at verse 34. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Now, the crowing of the rooster is proverbial for the arrival of a new day or at dawn. And so this emphasizes the fact of this very night. Peter will disown Jesus three times. Now, to disown literally means to tell someone that you have nothing to do with the person that you are disowning. And we'll see this play out in the weeks to come. But at this point, notice Peter's confidence in his own ability to withstand the trial coming his way. And after Jesus has told him in verse 34, you will disown me three times, don't be so overconfident, Peter. Look at verse 35. Peter says, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. Notice there again, never. He's confident. He's emphatic. And then Matthew tells us, just at the end of verse 35, that it wasn't just Peter But look at the end of that verse. All the other disciples said the same. Now before jumping to criticize this overconfidence, I would first point out that it is a good thing, is it not, to have this kind of desire. It it, it was good that they did not want to deny Jesus that they didn't want to fall away, that their spirit was willing. That is another major difference between them and Judas Iscariot, isn't it? Judas purposefully and with a plan betrays Jesus. The disciples here don't plan on it. They're just overconfident in their own abilities. Or that we would all passionately desire to honor Jesus every day in every area of our lives. Oh, that we would have a desire to stand when the day of testing and trial comes. What Christian among us wants to fall away? I mean, if there's no desire at all to stand for Jesus, well, then that's a different problem altogether to overconfidence, but you're definitely not going to stand. But we can only stand on that day of trial in the strength that Jesus gives us to stand in that day of trial. The problem the disciples have is not their desire to stand for Jesus. It was not that their spirit was willing. 
Their problem was that they were overconfident in their own ability and they were dismissing what Jesus had just told them about the difficulties to come. And we know how this will turn out. In verse 57 of this chapter, the trial of Jesus begins as he's arrested. And the section we are in now is the preparation for that trial. And so this section from verse 31 to 56 begins with a declaration of loyalty and overconfidence in self. And it ends in verse 56 where we read these words. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. These disciples were overconfident in their ability to withstand the time of trial. And brothers and sisters, we need to be wary of that same kind of attitude ourselves. We can so easily be servants that are overconfident in our abilities to withstand the trials that are coming our way. Be wary. Now, Proverbs speaks of this, doesn't it? Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before a fall. Those who trust in themselves are fools. But those who walk in wisdom are safe. And in the New Testament, Paul writes about trials and temptations and says, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. So we need to be careful not to be overconfident in our ability to withstand temptation or trial of any kind. For example, you may think that watching a movie with loads of swearing and sex in it, it won't impact me. Don't be overconfident. The Bible says to flee sin, not flirt with it. Don't watch it. You can't, you can't unsee what you have seen. And what you do see can play in your mind over and over and over again. Don't be overconfident that you can cope with watching that kind of stuff. You may think that you can meet a member of the opposite sex and just be really good friends. We can resist temptation. We're Christians. Don't be so foolish. Don't look at another person's situation and think you would fare so much better than they would. Uh, just as a, a personal example, I was the best parent in the whole wide world before I had children. I was. I was awesome. I looked at other parents and I thought, Poor, I wouldn't do that. I would do this instead. Uh, I can't understand why they do that. How wrong I was. How wrong I was. And how many times I've stumbled because of that way of thinking. As we start to open up activities again at church, as we uh, start coming together again in person uh, in the evenings and do all these uh, open up uh, other things, I think we need to be wary of not being overconfident that it will be easy just to start everything back up again. We need to pray 
We need to come before the Lord and ask his help, not just depend on our own abilities to be what we were a year ago. And I mentioned earlier about the proposed law change on conversion therapy. The time may come when we could be prosecuted for teaching what the Bible teaches. And it would be easy for us as God's people to assume that we would never capitulate. It would be so easy like the disciples here to say, I would never capitulate in the face of a threat of prosecution. Don't be so overconfident. And just as a, a personal example, it, you know, for me, I can stand here right now amongst Christians for the most part, and I find it easy to talk to other Christians about God's design for sex and marriage. Uh, no problem at all. I'm, I'm confident talking to my Christian brothers and sisters about these things. But I am not so confident when I have to stand in front of people that are struggling with those things and identify as homosexual and I have to tell them what the Bible teaches. Am I so confident then? I assure you, I am not. I am not as confident and I need to pray and ask God for his strength to help me to speak his word. We must not be so foolish to think that we can stand and speak God's word when it is hard because we find it easy when we're with each other. That's what, that's what Peter was doing. Don't look at any sin of any kind and say that could never happen to me because you know God has a way of showing us how our overconfidence in ourselves is so easily misplaced. We should never be overconfident at how we might fare in any trial or temptation. So how should we prepare? Well, overconfidence obviously is not the place to start. The opposite of overconfidence is dependence upon God. And how do we show dependence on God? We come to him in prayer and submission to his, his will. And that's what we will see Jesus do as we come to look at him in the Garden of Gethsemane next week. The disciples here are overconfident in their ability. Next week, we see Jesus fall flat on his face before his Father in complete dependence and submission to him. But I would encourage you before seeing that next week to spend time daily now in prayer. Ask God every single day, before you even get out of bed in the morning perhaps, and ask him, Lord, give me the strength I need to fulfill the tasks you have given me to do today. Because Lord, I cannot do this on my own in my own strength. Ask him to equip you in your workplace, in your home, in your school, to do the work he has given you to do. You know, God isn't only interested in what you might think as churchy activities. As Christians, we rely on his strength for every single breath we take and every single activity we undergo. Everything. We say to God, I'm depending on you, Lord. And I would encourage each of us to confess our sin to him. Tell him 
how you have failed. Because that not only is what we should do, as it, because we should be confessing our sins to God, but it reminds us that we've no reason to be confident as we speak our sins to God and tell him what we have done and how foolish we have been. Because that should remind us what fools we would be to have confidence in self. And then as you've confessed your sin to God with repentant hearts, ask God to deliver you from evil, knowing that it is only by his strength that we can live that life of discipleship that he calls us to. You cannot do it on your own. But with Christ, we can fulfill his will. And on Easter Sunday and every day, never forget that though we do fail and fall, the shepherd has overcome. There is forgiveness for those failures. And there is a day when we will be with God forever. And one of the three points above us will be no more. The suffering will not be overhead. It will be done. But we will always sing the praises of the shepherd who has overcome. That will never change. Well, although we are not to be overconfident in ourselves, we can and should be confident in God. When our trust is in him, we will not be shaken, and with him we can overcome. And that's the theme of our final song. Our final song says, Our confidence is in the Lord.
well, please stand uh, as we close with the benediction. It'd be good to stand together as we hear these uh, wonderful words which help us place our confidence in the right place. At the end of Jude, we read, To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Oh, mm-hmm.